Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. It is good to be with you this morning. A couple of things before we launch into Acts 15. Um, welcome. If you are a guest, we're so thankful that you are here. I've met some of you already, and it is just a, a privilege to gather, to worship, to have our hearts set upon the Lord. Um, it, th- this is my first Sunday speaking as senior pastor, so I, I wanted to share just a couple of thoughts uh, at the beginning of this message that my wife and I have been kind of churning around for the last couple weeks. It's, it's been an interesting ride, but I'll just read this and, and let it stand. Um, dear church family, uh, 13 years ago, while on our honeymoon, yes, we're going back a little ways, uh, we received a voicemail from Pastor Mike Ferris of First Baptist Zealand. And through the leading of God, that phone call eventually led to us coming here to a position at first. Our first full years were full of great growth and learning through both joyful and difficult times. Uh, eventually, senior pastor was uh, eventually a new senior pastor. Pastor Clint was called to our church. And by the way, this is an aside. Thank you for honoring him and his family last week. Um, just thankful to you for how you have sh- showed care and consideration and love towards him and his family back to my letter. Uh, Pastor Clint was called to our church, and we're so thankful, uh, as my wife, my wife and I are so thankful for his leadership the past 10 years. And during that time, we grew immensely. Our, our family grew uh, from the two of us to now five. Our love for this church grew, and God grew our faith by leaps and bounds. I went through an ordination process at one point, eventually went back to school to begin work on my Master's of Divinity, knowing that God was calling me to something in the area of preaching and and study, but I didn't know when and I didn't know why, and we just obediently followed. We began, we, we began to feel God was calling us to a senior pastor position, but assumed it would be elsewhere at various times. This call was confirmed throughout the last year or two, but a location was never determined. It became clear over time that God was calling us to stay here, and we rejoiced. We love you, our church. Uh, we are blessed, I am blessed to work beside two pastors who seek to follow God Men who are prayerful, students of the text, and they not only love God, they love you deeply. They love each one of you, and they desire to serve you well. Likewise, our staff serves Jesus passionately so that our ministries can become more effective in our mission, and that is to know Christ and to make Him known. We are blessed as a church to have a group of elders who voluntarily give up hours and hours of their time for the purposes of prayer, discussion, problem-solving, and casting vision. Our deacons regularly meet to serve Christ by serving you in very practical ways, including offering and including benevolence in ways I can't even begin to share with you here. We cannot forget, of course, the hours upon hours of volunteer time spent painting, decorating, building, cleaning, cooking, practicing, singing, playing instruments, encouraging missionaries, teaching children, and the list goes on and on. We believe strongly in the local church, and we believe that Jesus loves his church, and so do we. We are 
all imperfect, but we love this church. Together we have laughed and cried. We've disagreed. We've been united. We've rejoiced and mourned. We have served. We have worshiped. This church has become our family. And I say that on behalf of my wife and I, you have become our family. Born and not born, raised in Ohio, but we found family in Michigan. It can happen, friends. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not done. <laughs> this church has become our family, and we invite you, we invite you to let it become your family too. If you don't have a faith community, we invite you here to learn great people to meet them and to develop friendships and relationships with them, trusting that you can serve Christ together. A lot happens in 13 years, and we can look back with certainty and see how God has been shaping us for where we stand right now. He's brought specific mentors, experiences, and learning opportunities in preparation for this. And I stand here recognizing that I'm not capable of this position, but that I am called. When God calls, God also equips. And our prayer, this is the prayer my wife has been praying over our family for, for months now. It comes from 1 Corinthians 2. You don't need to turn there. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. That is our prayer for our ministry. That's our prayer for you, that you would have faith that is not based upon human wisdom, but based upon the power of God working mightily in and through you. And so, I invite you into this. Uh, I just love this passage from Romans chapter 12, and I invite you to let us live a life of honoring Christ together. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21 say this, let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. I'll read that again. We all need that sometimes. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Amen? Amen. All right, so that's what we launch ourselves into here this day, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. 
Acts 15, one theologian states, is the hinge on which the rest of the book of Acts is hung, all right? He's not the only one to say that. And in our passage today, one primary issue arises, and it's so important that it must be addressed, and it must be addressed very clearly by the early church. And so we have one major problem, doctrinal problem, that's going to be addressed. And then we have essentially two effects of the Jerusalem Council that we're going to look at this morning. So that's the pattern with which we will approach our time together here. Um, Would you stand with me as we read the scripture this morning? We're going to be reading from Acts 15, and we're going to go to, uh, I believe it's 35. Yes, to the end of 35. We'll save the tail end for a different time. Um, Acts 15, this is God's word. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they created great joy among all the brothers. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made, them, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. Then the whole assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who does these things, known from long ago." Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from, th- from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. 
Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, or Silvanus, you might read, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote this letter to be delivered to them. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Because we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep these things, if you, if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Then being sent off, they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. I love that, with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the message of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word today. God, we ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon its truth so that we might learn in order to live faithfully to your honor and glory. May people see Jesus, our resurrected Lord, when they see our lives living out the text by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you, thank you. So Acts 15. Um, There's a context in which Acts 15 occurs. Um, Acts 15 occurs as the message of the gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. In Acts chapter 13, you have the church at Antioch, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, sending Barnabas and Paul, commissioning them to be their representatives on behalf of the gospel. And so what we have is the gospel going literally to the nations, literally to the ends of the earth. The gospel goes forth and goes forth and goes forth. And Jesus' words in Acts 1-8 were just that. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And it faces threats as it goes. It, It faces threats like people who want things like circumcision to become mandatory for being a brother. It's like a threat inside the church. It it faces threats from outside the church. The the blending of pagan religion with true religion called syncretism. It faces threats like that. It, It faces even outright persecution because of the name of Jesus. But Acts 15 clarifies for us a very important doctrinal truth, and that is this. Salvation comes only through trusting in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus period. Amen? 
Amen. Yeah, this, this was a big thing, all right? This was a big thing as we see in this passage. Um, th- this is the full agreement of both the growing Gentile churches and the Jerusalem church from which they were birthed, okay? And, and this is so incredibly important. As Paul and Barnabas are gathered up in Antioch and they're teaching, there comes some men from Judea. All right, we find out in the passage that, that it may be people who believe that they were authorized from the Jerusalem church, or at least that's at least what they, they said. But, but they're believers, or they're, they're people who come up, they're not believers, that's, at the, down in, that's down in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem council. But there's men who come up, verses 1 and verse... Uh, Verses 1, yeah. Uh, And they say this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, it's a good question to ask, I think. Why would they say something like this? Where does this come from? The, the act of circumcision being required for faith is something that's not really a part of our context. Well, the issue is not primarily the physical act of circumcision, although that was part of it. What they're essentially saying is this. In order to become a follower of Jesus, you must first become a proselyte to Judaism, and then you can follow Jesus. Part of following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, means that you get circumcised, which is kind of the final rite of becoming a proselyte to Judaism, all right? You couldn't be a Jew without if you're male, you cannot be a Jew without first being circumcised. So they're saying, if you want to follow Jesus, who is a Jew, who's a Jewish Messiah, who served and ministered to the Jews and taught the scriptures, first you must be circumcised. That's the issue at hand. The early church, remember, is predominantly Jewish, and only in recent years has um, this been a significant issue? Because as the gospel goes forth to the Gentile nations, to, to the people who are not Jews, circumcision becomes an issue. The people coming to faith in Jesus before this, like in Acts chapter 2, when the church is birthed, they're already circumcised. Because the church starts near the temple, on the temple steps, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's at a festival, the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of um, Pentecost, I had to think which one it was in which language, the Feast of Pentecost. So they are gathered there in Acts chapter 2. They're all Jews. Circumcision isn't at play here, but it is at play as the church continues to become more or less and less Jewish and more and more Gentile Christian and Jewish Christian. And this debate grew so strong and so heated that it says in verses 2 through 4 that they sent to Jerusalem Paul and Barnabas, to establish whether this message was true. And um, the Jerusalem leader's response in verse 24 seems to suggest that men had said they had come with authorization that they really did not have. So Paul and Barnabas and some others of them go up to Jerusalem, and they arrive in Jerusalem going on their way, and they tell of all the things God God is doing through Phoenicia and Samaria. There's much rejoicing. When they arrive at Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they tell them everything that God has done. Notice with me verse 5. But some of the believers, all right, these are people who follow Jesus, but they're also from the party of the Pharisees, stood up, and they say the same thing. It is necessary for them to come and to command them to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. 
one of the things we have to kind of keep in mind is that Judaism at this point in time is made up of various groups. Uh, You have, for example, the Sadducees. You have the Pharisees. You have the Essenes. You have the Zealots. You have the Hasidim. You have different groups within Judaism that all have a slightly different bent on Judaism. For example, the Zealots, they were very militant for the law, and they would go to the point of even killing people sometimes in order to protect what they believed to be true. The Pharisees, are people who are very scrupulous down to the minutia. They, they would want to make sure they tied the, a tenth of their mint and their cumin, all these small things. Sometimes Jesus pronounces um, rebuke upon them for various things. That's kind of how we know of them. But, but they're people who generally sought to honor the Lord by being very scrupulous in keeping the law. Now, they may have missed the Lord in trying to keep the law so, so, so um, strongly, but Nonetheless, there are people within the framework of Judaism. You have the Essenes who essentially say, this world is too bad. We're just going to seclude ourselves away, devote ourselves to the study of the scripture, and not pollute ourselves with the world. Uh, You have other groups. I I think I said the Sadducees. Big difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. Yeah, yeah. I didn't write it. That's just a a classic pastor joke that you get today. Um, So these believers subscribe to the law of Moses. They see its adherence as integral to following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So don't be too hard upon them because their practice up to this point has been God has commanded us to be circumcised and to circumcise our boys. And he's commanded us for Torah observance. He's commanded us to keep all the words in the, in the scripture. And this is what it means to be a Jew. This is the framework with which they knew religion and they knew faith. And, and since early Christianity finds its roots in the Jewish uh, faith and Jesus the Messiah, this fits within their paradigm. This fits within the way that they think about faith. So refusing uh, circumcision and following the law of Moses, which was obligatory for a Jew, uh, would would then place certain stipulations on how you interacted with people. In in other words, um, social interactions would sometimes be limited between a Jewish person who sought to be observant and a pagan or a Gentile, all right? in the next couple verses, verses 6 through 21, we have various testimonies before the assembly. So all these people, they're gathered in Jerusalem, which is kind of the major sending church. It's where the apostles are. It's where the early church leaders are. You have James, and the James mentioned here is James, the brother of Jesus, who is kind of presiding over this council. We see him a couple chapters back. Uh, Peter actually says, tell the brothers and tell James. You know, James is a very important figure in this early church. And so Peter, the leader of the disciples, the rock of the early church, he, he kicks it off after some discussion. And, and after the debate, Peter stands up, verse 7, brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice. And Peter goes on to say how God made a choice. By my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts 
by faith. And so Peter's testimony before this group is, now then why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that we are. In other words, he is saying, he, as he shares the gospel message with the Gentiles, he says, God knows the hearts of men. God has given the Holy Spirit to Gentiles, confirming their partnership in the kingdom of God. And just as he did with the Jewish people, God cleansed their hearts by faith. He cleansed their hearts by faith. If you want to look up an, another usage of the word cleanse there, you can look in 1 John 1.7, another kind of glimpse into what it means to have your hearts cleansed by faith. It's not by works or circumcision that the Jewish people come to faith, but it's by trusting in the Messiah's work of dying and rising again. In other words, as we sang this morning, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is Peter's testimony. He, he, he says, nothing can wash away your sin. Your, your Torah observance, your scrupulous acts of uh, circumcision, uh, I guess that's one act, not, it's not single act, or it's not multiple, um, circumcision, following the law, dietary codes, none of that saves you. None of that has ever saved you. It's just the way that you follow Jewish people, what God has called you to. What saves you is this, belief and trust in the Messiah Jesus to pay for and to cover your sin. Um, verses 10 and 11, uh, Peter recognizes that the Jewish people have not bore the commandments in a sufficient way as to fulfill them. In fact, only one person has ever done that perfectly, and that is Jesus. And so what matters here most is that with regards to salvation, the only thing that matters is what God has done by sending his son and God's redemptive initiative, his grace in the lives of people. And as people trust in that message, in that message alone, they find true salvation and redemption. And so it's, just pause and think for a moment. What are some of the ways that we add to salvation in our day? All right, this is first century stuff, had to do with circumcision. What are some of the ways in which we add to salvation today? Lifestyle choices? Whether or not your past is good or bad, what we dress, what we say, the music we listen to, we, we, we attach a lot of things to salvation that are not attached to salvation. The only thing that is attached to salvation is trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that does not mean that we are not called to live a certain way, but that comes after coming to faith. You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you have a loved one or a friend or a coworker who is just very, very um, ungodly in how they act and what they say in the lifestyle that they portray? The biggest thing that we can do as a people of faith is to pray for their salvation. Because unless they have met Jesus and they've trusted Jesus with their sin, any sort of behavior modification after that is really inconsequential. What are some of the ways in which you and I place barriers between people coming to faith? Well, you can't come to faith unless you, unless you, unless you. Look, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
If you were to look back in my past, you would find pride and selfishness and a whole bunch of mess that separated me from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made me alive not because of my works, only because of my trust in him and in him alone. Amen? So this is what's at stake. What is at stake for really from then all the way up until now is what is the bare essence of the gospel? What does the scripture call us to? And we must never add anything beyond that to someone who is far from Christ. The first thing we do if someone is far from God is we continue to pray, we continue to show them the love of Christ, and we continue to invite them to trust Jesus, period. After that, then we say, all right, what does it mean to trust Jesus? Let's look at the text and find out. And then lifestyle changes in ways that matter. Paul and Barnabas then get their chance, all right? Peter has gone on his spiel, and Paul and Barnabas come up here, and they describe the signs and the wonders that God has done through them to bring the Gentiles to faith. This is something that they could not explain this away. They look at what God had done to bring the Gentiles to himself, and they say, only God could have done this, friends. So, um, this did not happen within their expected paradigm, but it certainly happened um, because of God's will and because of God's calling upon these Gentiles' life. They may have been apparently fuzzy on what God wanted to do, but James succinctly brings this conversation together in verses 13 through 21. James, the brother of Jesus, testifies, uh, and and he says, Quoting from largely, predominantly, Amos chapter 9, he says, God will rebuild and restore Gentiles who are called by, called by my name. The, f- the fulfillment of this fulfillment indicates that it isn't Gentiles coming to the Messiah as Jews, but as Gentiles. They enter God's kingdom as Gentiles. They don't become Jewish first, but they enter by faith the same way the Jewish people entered by faith or by trusting. James is is significant here, as I mentioned, because he's, he's a leader within the church at Jerusalem. He's perhaps the first among equals of the elder team at the Jerusalem church, and as such, he has to play a significant role in determining how to best care for this young church, especially in times of conflict. He quotes, um, there's a quote in the Moody Bible Commentary that kind of summarizes this whole thing having to do with his quotation from the book of Amos. And it says this, Amos looked forward to the times of the Messiah, which included the salvation of Gentiles without their becoming part of Israel. These times have arrived with Jesus, and the new work of God indicates that salvation is going out to the Gentiles apart from keeping the law. All right, so, so thus, he has made a ruling. As the presider of this, he's made a ruling. But not only has he made a ruling, we see all the people gathered there affirm and confirm his ruling. The ruling is this. Don't make it difficult for Gentiles to come to God. Write to them, because he wants to clearly explain to the believers at Antioch and, and the surrounding region what it means to follow Jesus. And he says this, these commands are for Gentile believers. And he writes them, to observe the following practices. Verse 29, 
Well, it's actually in a couple different places. It's in both the letter and in verse, uh, verse 20 and verse 29. Verse 20 says, Instead, write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. All right? There's four things, four stipulations that he puts on Gentile believers. All right? This is written to Gentile believers within the church, primarily at Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Now, these are interesting words. <laughs> he says, don't make it difficult for them to come to God. Write them these things, and here are the things. Abstain from things polluted by idols. Now, this is an idea that comes from meat that is sacrificed as a part of heathen sacrifices. You, you have to remember, the way Jewish people were raised is not the way the people in Antioch were raised. All right? Antioch is the third largest city, one of the three largest cities at this time. It's very Hellenized. It's very pagan. They, they have, amidst this like, great cosmopolitan um, setting, they, they, they have up to a half a million residents, and, and it had institutions of strange fertility religions, brutalizing sports spectacles, and a variety of mystery religions, okay? There's a very big difference between Jerusalem and Antioch. Huge. And, and so you have to remember what he's writing to them is somewhat specific to their culture. It, it, it plays within what they have grown up doing, namely things being polluted by idols. Idol worship was prevalent within Antioch and the surrounding region. Part of what they would do as, as in the practice of uh, sacrificing is they would have meat that is sacrificed to the idols, and then uh, part of that meat would go to the people who are in charge of the temple, and another part of that meat would be kept by the people offering the meat, and they could have a, a meal with their friends on the temple courts somewhere in that area. It became this like uh, great act of, it was maybe the pagan potluck, we'll call it that. <laughs> um, and he says, I want you to refrain from the pagan potluck, all right? Don't take your meat to the other gods and then keep it for yourselves and make that a part of your worship service, all right? So here's the other thing. I, I mentioned there's a difference between Antioch and Jerusalem. The Jewish people were forbidden to eat flesh sacrificed to idols. They were also forbidden to trade into it. Um, it defiled like a corpse if anyone came into contact with it in an enclosed space. And one writer says, to force a Jew to eat defiled meat was to enforce apostasy. So the way that the pagan person may look at meat and the way that the Jewish person may look at meat are two different things. Because there's also, within the sphere of Antioch, you would take that meat, you'd offer it, you could eat it, but you could also buy meat at the marketplace, and that meat may have come from having been offered to idols. So you find in 1 Corinthians, you find in Romans, Paul saying it kind of depends upon your context whether or not you eat this meat. He, Paul says it's essentially not the meat that defiles you, it's, it's the practice of which you eat it. But he also says in Romans 14, he says, if your brother is offended by whether or not you're eating this meat, you find out it's being offered to pagans, but you're eating it in someone's home, don't eat it for matters of conscience. That's the difference between the Jew and the Gentile, all right? For the Jew to eat meat offered to idols is to essentially commit apostasy for how they have been raised. 
Here's a point. Rituals and worship can lead us toward God. They can also lead us to false gods. In the wrong context, you can have this act of giving meat, and it can lead you away from God. It can lead your brother away from God. The point is not primarily the meat. It's what is behind the meat that is being done, namely the pagan celebration. So, Offering food as worship to gods. That, that, that happened in that time. So we have that part. The next part we have is sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality, the word that's used here in the Greek is the word porneia, okay? It, it's the word from which we get pornography, and it means unlawful sexual intercourse. It means prostitution, unchastity, and fornication. Now, for the people of God, it's something that kind of goes without saying. Jewish people lived a very uh, righteous lifestyle with regard to this. In the Torah, there's a whole bunch of commands that they, were, that they were called to keep in order to keep themselves pure and honoring God in their physical bodies. Not so in the ancient pagan world. Um, extramarital sex in the Greek world was considered a casual and normative part of life. It lost the sacredness that the Bible teaches with regard to marriage and sex. And engaging in porneia is considered one of the greatest sins a Jew could engage with, along with idolatry and murder. And so within the context of pagan worship, unholy sexual practices often took place. I have a couple of pictures. Um, Dustin, this is a couple down. There's a picture of a, a foot. If you'd put that one up there. So what would happen in Roman times is you'd see this, and the direction to which this foot is pointing is the direction to where the brothel or the prostitution center would be. When we were in Corinth years ago, I was on a trip with Cedarville. There's, there's the city of Corinth, and then there's this big hill, and it's called the Acro-Corinth. And up on the hill is where, after you were worshiping, you would go, and as a part of your pagan worship, you could go and engage in very wrong things. All right? There's another picture from the ancient world. Go to the next picture, I believe it is, Dustin. Yeah, so this is a, a brothel chamber, essentially. It was a given part of life that you would engage in sexual immorality. What one group thought of sexual immorality, according to the scripture, what the other group thought of were two different things. And so when Paul, or not when Paul, when James is telling the believers, he says, I want you to refrain from four things. Meat polluted to idols, in essence, idolatry. Then he says, I want you to avoid sexual immorality. This is part of the picture that he's painting for the people there. Um, he also says, eating something that was strangled and blood. And blood here could either refer to the blood that comes from an animal, or it could also refer to murder, okay? It can kind of go both ways linguistically. And if you look at Leviticus 17 and 18, you don't need to turn there now, there, there's a host of various laws that prohibit the eating of blood, they prohibit improper sexual relationships, and define what is norm for the Jewish people. And so, here are these four commands, four of which it's like, for us, maybe it's like, of course you wouldn't do that, but for people who are steeped in a religion, who have just come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they've been raised in a different sense of norms than what the Jewish believers have been raised in. And so, on the one hand, you have the mixing of the Jewish and the Gentile believers, and like, how do we live life together? You have this code of how you live. We've had this code growing up. What does it mean to follow Jesus here? All right, so it'd be, it'd be tempting for the Jewish person to say, you need to live according to all the 613 commands of the Torah. 
What brings them together, though, is not the 613 commands. What brings them together is Jesus. And what do they do with that? And so the early church was commanded to abstain from these four things. James says, let's do this. Everyone around him says, yes, let's do this. And they not only write it down in a letter, they send beloved representatives to go with Paul and to go with Barnabas to say this is the message from the elders, the leadership, the apostles, not just them, but the entire church agrees to this. They say, yes, observe this, and that is a way that you can honor God and that you can also honor the sensitivities between Jew and Gentile. At the core of these commands, it's the desire of James for the Gentiles to live differently from the culture in which they reside. The Gentile culture, filled with idol worship and sexual immorality, it was just rampant. And they say, we want you to live differently. We want your life to be marked by something significantly different than your context that you are currently dwelling in. And so, big point, what is of greatest importance is what brings us together, and that is Jesus, all right? Establish that. That's solidified. It's not by keeping all the commands of the Scripture, but what brings Jews and Gentiles and everyone else together in faith is Jesus and Jesus alone. But how do we live together as a community? Well, unity is very important to God, and so Gentile believers were called to live in this manner. Now, notice it this is written to Gentile believers. They didn't write this to Jewish believers. They wrote this to Gentile believers. They never say to Jewish believers, stop keeping the laws of the Torah. They never say, stop practicing Sabbath in your home. That was a part of how they grew up. Many of those commands, they've been called to keep in the Torah in perpetuity, you know, for as long as your generations. And so they're not saying Jews stop being Jews. They're not saying Gentiles stop being Gentiles. They're saying honor God whether you are Jew or Gentile. But here's four things that we can and we should agree on. And the reason they agree on these things is, is because unity is difficult, um, but walking in love is mandatory. <laughs> Romans 14 reminds us to be mindful of our brother's conscience. To walk in love sometimes means to restrict freedoms to not harm their conscience, which is why in 1 Corinthians, I think, and, um, and in Romans 14, he's saying, yeah, you can eat meat in the proper context that has been sacrificed to idols. You, you can't eat it at an idol worship ceremony. You can eat it outside of that, but not if it offends your brother. Does that kind of make sense? couple different layers going on there. Ben Witherington, who is a scholar in New Testament studies, he brings out this idea, though, that I think is strong and helpful for us. Um, he describes that unity is part of what's at play here, but within these four prohibitions, there's one place where all four of these prohibitions can be found, and that is at pagan idol worship. Um, he says this, the Gentiles have turned to the living and true God. What they're being asked to turn from is idolatry and the accompanying acts of immorality. Abstaining from idolatry and immorality were, after all, the most basic things required by the Mosaic law. 
He goes on to say, it is more likely that each item in this decree should be taken separately and be seen as referring to four different activities that were known or believed to transpire in pagan temples. In other words, he's saying what matters here most of all is your witness. Gentiles in Antioch and Cilicia and that whole region, what matters is your witness. When you go to work, do you then go participate in engaging in worship at the pagan temple still? Or do you remove yourself from that practice of society? Ask you a question, what does a witness look like today? What, what does it mean to be a witness today? Most of us, I would assume, have not grown up in a traditional Jewish heritage. Um, most of us, I would assume, have not grown up in Antioch. But we've grown up in this time and this place, maybe deviated from there, but we still have to ask the same question. What does it mean to be a witness today? If the letter to the Gentiles at Antioch was to say, remove yourself from worshiping idols and worship the true God and him alone, if that's what's at play here, that's what's at play for us too. What does a witness for Christ look like today? What are the pagan temples that our culture readily accepts? We've been in a series recently about the disciples' prayer. In that prayer, we have things like our Father, which talks about our identity. One of the ways I think, I believe, that um, we can pursue things not of God is we can say, my identity is in my money, my identity is in my job, my identity is in this, this, and this. But Jesus says, when you pray, pray, our Father. Because he's your Father, and your identity is as his child. That's maybe one thing we could consider. What does a witness look like today? What does it mean to live as God's child? Um, another thing we have prayed in the disciples' prayer is, may God's name be hallowed or sanctified. May his kingdom and his will be done. This has to do with purpose and priority. What is the purpose and the priority for our lives? How is it different from the world around us? Is it focused on what God wants from us? Is it focused upon what God teaches us? Or is it focused upon the things that we find in our culture around us? We've also studied, give us today our daily bread. This is a prayer of dependence. It's so easy, friends. I fall into this trap so often of thinking that I'm dependent upon myself or I'm dependent upon someone else for everything I need today. But the heart of the disciples to pray, God, give me my sustaining needs today. God, you alone can meet my needs in perfect wholeness. Another part of the disciples' prayer is forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. It's, it's this idea of forgiveness. Where in our lives do we model forgiveness in a way that is different than the world? I was talking to a friend recently, and one of the things he said was in the context in which he is planted, someone remarked to him that how he forgives is very different than how most of the other people do. We are called to forgive as Christ has forgiven, which means putting down our pride, which means putting down the control we want to hold over someone and saying, God, you have forgiven me. God, help me forgive them. And when people see that, they see a witness. They see a witness. Finally, 
temptation and the evil one. We recognize that there is a battle, a spiritual battle going on around us. The scripture says that the adversary comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Where in our lives are we mindful of the spiritual attack upon our hearts, upon our families? And where do we not stand in our own strength, but stand in the strength that God alone gives us? The text goes on. We won't finish it, but the, uh, just quickly, the apostles, the elders, together with the whole church, ratify this decision. These verses are embraced with great joy by the believers there, and they set their hearts and their minds to being one people and to honoring God in how they live. What matters of utmost importance is we are joined together by the gospel. But what comes from that gospel is our witness. I want to invite you to just kind of bow your head and close your eyes and to think of your life this past week and to ask God prayerfully, God, what kind of witness am I? And ask God to show you how you might be a better witness for Christ this week. Not in your own flesh, not in your own power, but by the power of the one who has raised Jesus from the grave. Our Father and our King, we gather this morning because we want to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And God, we ask you to show us the ways in which we put things between the gospel and people. And God, forgive us of that. May we be gospel-centered in all we do. And as people come to faith in your Son, God, may we invite them into a certain way of living that would honor and sanctify the name of Jesus. And God, as we consider the witness that we have, the words that we say, the thoughts that we think, the actions that our, our hands and our minds and our bodies go towards each week, God, show us the ways in our lives that are against you, that are more bent upon personal pride, that are more bent on being right, that are more bent upon holding unforgiveness. God, help us to walk in your truth. God, we are mindful that the attack of the evil one is upon your people. But God, that battle has been won. And we ask for strength to stand in the victory that we have in Christ. We ask God for wisdom to know what is from your hand, what is from your spirit, and the lies with which we are fed each day by media, by people, by even our own selfish bent. Thank you, God, for being sufficient for us today. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen. We're going to invite you to stand and sing uh, with us as we close. But I just want to say this. If you don't know Jesus today, the biggest thing that you can do, the best decision you can ever make in your life is to say, God, I'm a sinner, and to turn to the one who can save you from your sins. Jesus died and he was buried, and he rose again so that you and I might have life in his name. And I invite you to that today.
I invite you to a new way of walking, a new way of witnessing the greatness of our God. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.